God's word is reported in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, and chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, and the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which, of, which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. The word of our Lord. Well, let's pray together. We call you Father. And you know what we need before we even ask you. That's what it means for you to be our Father. And Father, there are too many needs in my own heart and in every other heart in this room for me to know or for me to have confidence in my ability to pray the right things. So I rest very gladly on not only your wisdom as my Father, but also your goodness. You know how to give good things to us. So we ask, seek, and knock that you would do that very thing. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, would you build them up? And for those who are not yet joined to Jesus Christ, will you grant that on this day uh, they would uh, be born again and given the gifts of repentance and faith and brought by the power of your Spirit into your kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our third week in Matthew 6, and a couple of weeks ago I, I pointed out that uh, when we get to Matthew 6, the, the central theme that Jesus is working out is the fatherhood of God. It's, uh, it's amazing how concentrated uh, Jesus' teaching on the fatherhood of God is in Matthew 6. We, we saw uh, two weeks ago that 
in uh, Matthew 5, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes uh, God as the father of uh, Jesus' disciples three times. And then in chapter 7, which is the last chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, he describes God as the father of Jesus' disciples only one time. But in chapter 6, he does it 12 times. And those statistics are meant to get our attention. And uh, what they show us is that Jesus is teaching us that the life of his disciples, what it means to live life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is defined in every respect, ultimately, by the reality of the fatherhood of God. And we saw that he's a kingly father and a fatherly king. And last week, we looked at the power of the Father's approval in our lives. Uh, That the Christian, Jesus is showing us that the Christian does not live for the approval of the Father without first living from it. That's Jesus' great gift to us. And the Father's great passion for all human beings is that he might approve them in Jesus Christ. And then this morning, uh, we look at our Lord's teaching on prayer, which is also an area of discipleship that is defined by the fatherhood of God. And interestingly enough, this topic of prayer gets more attention, uh, more of Jesus' attention in chapter 6 than any other topic. And so it's obviously very important to him and very important Uh, to what he understands the life of his disciples will be. And here again, we see that this aspect of what it means to follow Jesus, it flourishes according to our vision of God's fatherhood. So you can't, according to Jesus, let me just say it this way, according to Jesus, you can't know what it is to pray, and you can't pray rightly, except to the degree that you know and can relate to God as your Father through Him, through Jesus. So we're going to look at three visions, if you will, related visions of prayer that Jesus gives us in Matthew 6, if you want to understand what it, what it means to pray. Jesus first teaches us about a fatherless vision of prayer, fatherless prayer, which is how not to pray. Then He teaches us about father-filled prayer, which is how we are to pray, And then finally, uh, really the gift of prayer, how and why we ought to pray as his disciples of Father-provided prayer. So fatherless prayer, Father-filled prayer, and Father-provided prayer. Uh, Let's look first at how Jesus doesn't want us to pray, what he warns us against, which is a fatherless prayer. And you notice uh, this shows up in verses of 5 through 8, really. And Jesus is, before he teaches us, the right way to pray, what father-filled prayer is, he warns us against two uh, related, although on the surface uh, apparently different uh, ways of uh, praying, but both are ultimately united by this fatherless vision. And he, he speaks of the hypocrites and also the Gentiles and warns his disciples against both of their examples. And what's interesting about both groups is they both pray a lot. And Jesus says, don't be like those people who pray a lot. Now, did I get your attention? See, when you actually pay attention to what Jesus says, he shocks you in every other sentence. 
So it's really important to pay attention because when you feel a jolt as you read, that is a signal that something important has just been passed by. You need to stop the car, you need to put it in reverse, you need to go back and you need to say, okay, I'm going to wait here until I understand this. Look first at the hypocrites in verses 5 through 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Well, who are the hypocrites? They're Jews. And we know that because Jesus says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, right? And he says they're very prayerful. I mean, these are the people who love to pray in public. They, they're the first ones to uh, fill those awkward silences in the corporate prayer times. They're the first ones, when you go out to lunch, to say, hey, let's return thanks. They're the first ones who bump into you on the street, and they won't just say, hey, listen, I'm going to pray about that when I get back home. They're going to say, let's stop and pray right now. And Jesus says, don't be like them. That's interesting. Don't you think that he would uh, commend people who want to pray in the synagogues and who, who want to pray in church and who want to pray outside of church? Doesn't it surprise you that Jesus would say, hey, 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 don't be like them. You see, his evaluation of them is not that they're pious. His evaluation of them is that they're hypocrites, which means he's saying they are posers. They're actors. They're performers. They're, they're praying not because God is their treasure, but because man is their treasure. We looked at that last week, right? See, the key issue is not that they pray a lot. The key issue that Jesus is honing in on, and he does the same thing with the example of the Gentiles, is why do they pray? That's the key issue. It's not enough for Jesus to tell his disciples, okay, if you follow me, and you have God as your Father, that means you have to pray a lot. No, Jesus is going way deeper than that, and it's a wonderful thing. The problem with the hypocrites is that their prayerfulness is fatherless. And this is kind of scary, because they're Jews, they're not pagans, so they know the Bible, and they know the right names for God, and they they, they have the Psalms, which is exactly what we do. And yet Jesus is saying, guys, <clears throat> don't follow their example because their prayerfulness is essentially a mechanism to you, of using God to get something besides God. They want the uh, approval of men. They don't want what C.S. Lewis describes in the reflection quote, that the communion with God, God disclosing himself to us, uh, which is the bread, according to Lewis, the bread and wine of prayer. They don't want that. They want the praise of men. So they love to pray publicly. And all their piety is a public piety. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, I get that you pray a lot, but why is it that you pray a lot? Is it because you want God? Is it because you believe that you're a child of God and that the greatest reward you can receive in life is to have God, your maker, as your father? And he knows the answer that they would give, which is no, we want the praise of men. 
And Jesus dismisses them as posers. And he says to his disciples, don't pray fatherlessly. You're a beloved child. If you're my disciple, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in me, I have given you the right to become the children of God. And that means that my father is your father. And that radically changes not just how you pray, but ultimately why you pray. Because you have God's fatherhood for you. And so you can go into your closet. You don't need the approval of men. You can go into your closet and shut the door and know that because you have God as your father, he not only knows your heart and sees in secret, but he is with you in secret. It's beautiful. You see, if, if ultimately the reward of prayer is fellowship with God, then notice, I mean, Jesus' Jesus's instructions are kind of self-editing, aren't they? If, if you don't pray when no one else sees except God, Jesus would say, work backwards from that. That means that God's not your treasure. That means that you're a fatherless prayer and you don't know God as your father. If you knew him as your father, you would be eager to go into the closet. And then he goes on to talk about another kind of fatherless praying. It's the fatherless praying of the Gentiles in verses 7 through 8. And it's really a fascinating contrast with the hypocrites uh, because if you think about it, the hypocrites are, are praying to manipulate men, right? I mean, they're praying publicly because what they want, they want to come across as spiritual people because in that culture, right, to be spiritual uh, was, uh, gave you social standing. There are a lot of people who go to church because they think it gives them social standing. That's what Jesus is, he's warning us about that, among other things. He's saying, that, that's not why you go to church. That's not why you worship. That's not why you pray. So you can get in with a circle of people who are Christians. Pray for God. Pray because of God. You pray because your treasure is fellowship with your father. And if the hypocrites are, are praying to manipulate men, what's interesting about the Gentiles is that Jesus shows us that they pray, the reason they pray is to manipulate God. And that too is a kind of fatherless praying that he warns us against. A kind of, it's fatherless because it doesn't know and doesn't trust and doesn't flow out of a vision of the reality of God's fatherhood. And so not knowing God as father radically affects the way they pray. They pray a lot too. You notice what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. They pray a lot. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You see, their hope is in their technique, isn't it? 
If the, if the hypocrites are trying to leverage, uh, to use God to get the approval of men, the Gentiles are, are hoping by that. They're so self-preoccupied. Think about the, the vision of what prayer is for them. They, they've got to heap up all these phrases, and they've got to use many words in order, and they have to inform God if they're going to have any hope of getting what they need. So they're praying uh, effectively doesn't, doesn't flow out of a true knowledge of God as their father because notice the assumption is when they pray and the way they pray flows out of uh, fear. They're prayerful because they're fearful that unless they do it just right, they're not going to have what they need because God doesn't care and God doesn't know. Now, as much as we would like to say, neither of these apply to me, they both do, don't they? Jesus is wanting to, you know, expose the tendencies in our hearts that we all have to pray for the wrong reasons, to look, uh, if you will. Uh, here's another illustration to try to explain the difference between the two. So the hypocrites, if you will, are... I kept thinking of this, the difference in these images, trying to, trying to capture a way to illustrate what's, what's different uh, about these two problems and yet how they both are rooted in a, a, a shared fatherless vision of who God is. The hypocrites are praying, looking past God's shoulder at something behind God that they want more than God. And the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases and who use many words and who think that they'll be heard because of their many words, they are praying to tap on God's shoulder to get his attention. Now, when I lived in Japan, uh, I often thought about uh, these texts because when you go to a Shinto shrine, you, here's, here's how you get the, the, the little deity's attention. First... You drop money in the money box, which is right before the altar. And so the ringing of the coffers is supposed to get the, the little deity's attention. And then if that hasn't worked because it wasn't enough, you need to clap three times. Over here! Now you see, that's how the Gentiles are praying. Because they don't start from a conviction that God cares for them or that he knows uh, what's going on in their lives. And that is utterly fatal. You see, they have three convictions, right? They, they think God's ignorant, they think God's distant, and they think he's reluctant. Their fatherless praying reveals that they think that they are essentially cosmic orphans who have to be their own advocates because no one else will be. Now, friends, Jesus is setting forth a... I wonder if you ever felt like that. Even as a Christian, I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I mean, sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it feels like the words don't even get past your lips, right? It doesn't feel like they're breaking through. And Jesus knows that. He had that experience in Gethsemane, by the way. And he's saying, you've got to start 
from convictions about who God is. And I have made him your father. So that means he's not distant. That means he's not ignorant. That means he's not reluctant. It means you are not on your own. And it means you are not alone. Don't pray fatherlessly. Friends, God is a genie. Not. He's not a genie. He's a father. Which means that he is thinking around the corner for you. He's a much better father than we ever could be to our children. And when we're at our best as fathers, we're thinking around the corner for our kids in ways that kids, our kids don't appreciate. That doesn't make them bad kids. It just makes them kids. Now, if that's true for us, then how much more for our Heavenly Father? And Jesus is saying, oh my goodness, what it means to be my disciple is that you have a father who's not ignorant, who's not distant, and who's not reluctant. So I want to give you a father-filled vision of prayer. To fill, if, you don't, if you avoid the fatherless praying of both the hypocrites and the Gentiles, now look at what it means to have a father-filled vision of prayer. And that's really how the Lord gives us this, or why the Lord gives us what we recognize as the Lord's Prayer in verses, uh, really it starts, it starts in verse 8 and goes through verse 13 with some commentary in verses 14 and 15. And I want you to notice something very interesting here that is often, I think, missed because we rush we rush with the way we read these things. We lift out the Lord's Prayer from its context. But it's very important, if you're going to understand the Lord's Prayer clearly, it's very important that you see how Jesus gets to the Lord's Prayer. What's the transition and the bridge that he uses to introduce the Lord's Prayer to us? And, and that bridge starts in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then, or pray therefore in light of what I just said, that your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, pray like this. Now, what that means is that this prayer is going to, in its entirety, is going to be about what we need. Simple enough, right? Well, have you ever looked at the first three petitions? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever looked at those as kind of the price you have to pay, talking to God about God so you can talk to him about yourself, give us this day our daily bread? If you're too embarrassed to admit it. No, I'm just kidding. You know what it means for Jesus to introduce the Lord's Prayer? Here's my point. What it means is that that's what we need. Not just our daily bread and then forgiveness and being protected from temptation, but the whole prayer is about what we need. And look at where Jesus starts. Friends, what it means to be made in the image of God and, and much more uh, dramatically for those who've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and therefore are now God's children, what human beings need most and first is God. That's why Jesus begins the way he does. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What is it? What does a human being need more than anything else to be reconciled to God? 
To know God as your Father, which doesn't happen just by virtue of your creation. It happens through redemption that comes only through Jesus Christ to those who received him and who believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God. And Jesus is taking us all the way to the top. And he's saying, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you feel, your highest need, your most urgent need as a human being is to know and to celebrate and to grow in the knowledge and the celebration and the submission to God as your Father. Human beings won't flourish apart from God. Human beings won't flourish apart from the rule of God. Human beings don't flourish apart from doing the will of God. That's the greatest need of every human being. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus tells us later in the chapter, all these other things will be added unto you. And he's modeling that in this prayer, isn't he? You see, Jesus is is wanting us through the Lord's Prayer to see the Father through Jesus' eyes. And what we see about him, because Jesus knows that we pray according to our picture of who God is and how we relate to him. Really, uh, according to pictures of how we view God, uh, is he our Father, and how we view ourselves. And Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, wants us to see the Father through his eyes, through Jesus' eyes, and wants us to know ourselves through the Father's eyes. And if you take the Lord's Prayer, and if I said to you, okay, now write your identity description as a human being. See yourself through the Father's eyes in this prayer. What do you learn about yourself? Well, what you learn about yourself is that you need God. And you you were made to live in his kingdom and under his rule. And you were made to live on an earth that, that has been made one with heaven. That heaven has come down. Your kingdom come. Come down here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because this world is so broken and so messed up in, in limitless ways that we cannot get by with a bandage. We cannot get by with education reform or health care reform or the right candidate in the White House. We cannot get by with a sane energy policy or, you know, computers for everybody. We cannot. It's not enough to no longer have AIDS and no longer have malaria. That's not enough. It's no longer enough for there to be no starvation in the world. Those aren't good enough. What we need... It's for God to come in his rule. That's what we cast off in the fall. And how has it gone since then? We're needy. We're broken. We mess up our relationships. We're hungry. We are vulnerable to temptation. We need forgiveness. We're desperate for forgiveness. We are clouded and hounded by guilt and regrets. We need our Father to come. Now, how about if we view the Father through Jesus' eyes? He's holy. 
He's gracious. He's not ignorant, right? He knows, he knows our, the rhythms of our hunger. He's not distant. He rules close by. He's not reluctant. God the Father is not, I mean, he's not like some, some mighty king who's walled himself off in this castle that we have to bombard like the Gentiles do with these, these petitions and these empty phrases and hope that we can climb over the moats and the, the walls and break into his treasure room and take what we need against his will. That's not who God is. Jesus is saying, your father is your father. He's not reluctant. He bursts out of that castle with willingness and generosity. That's how you have to pray. You can see it in the Lord's Prayer. You can see it in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, to your son, being evil, then how much more will he, your Father in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus has this massive contrast. When we pray, friends, because, because we're in Christ, when we pray, we are not overcoming God's reluctance. We are laying hold of his willingness And if we believe that, and to the degree we do, the tone in our praying will change. Our eagerness to pray will change. I think sometimes the reason I'm reluctant to pray and experience reluctance to pray is because I've fallen into one of the fatherless visions of prayer, right? Particularly the Gentile one. That I've got to overcome, I've got to heap up something in my prayer to get God's attention. Oh, what an offense that is to the goodness of God. Think about his kindness that we see. God, you know, in this prayer you can see that what our Father wants to give us is his kindness. He wants us to experience his kindness on a daily basis. So you look at verse 11. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. It means that our Father's greatness, this great God in verses 9 and 10, who's exalted, who's the king, right? Who's going to rule all of creation, is going to come and transform the, the heavens and the earth into a new heavens and a new earth, that this mighty transcendent king cares about what's in my cupboard. He's not only transcendent, he's imminent, he's near, he's close, close enough to know what I need, not just over the course of my lifetime, but daily. Now, you just think about what it takes for you to get food. Well, you you need money. Where do you get money? Well, usually it's because you have a job. Well, how can you do your job? Well, because God's given you abilities and strength and health to be able to do your job. Well, where did your job come from? Well, there's a business of some kind that is answering some kind of need that people have. We call them customers who in turn have money. Otherwise, business isn't going to work. Unless, of course, you're a Wall Street investment banking house, right? But that's a whole other subject. Those people have to have jobs to have money to come and to support your business, the business you work in. And that has to be led by people successfully with abilities that God gave them so you can have a paycheck. But then there has to be food for you to buy. Well, that means that it has to be grown. 
That means it has to be raised. That means that right now there are cows who are eating grass who will one day be in a hamburger that I'm going to eat. And I'm not even thinking about them. And that means that that food somehow has to get to the store. It means there have to be stores. It means that I have to be able to have transportation. You see where I'm going with this? This is not a simple thing. It's an awesome thing just to have dinner day after day after day the kindnesses of God and God not only wants us to experience his kindness on a daily basis but also his forgiveness on a daily basis that's what I was talking about in the prayer of confession look so much emphasis on forgiveness look at verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and dropping down to verses 14 and 15 for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses well here's what Jesus is not saying he's not saying that you earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others but he's saying that if you have really received God's forgiveness there's no way you can keep that in that forgiveness excuse me that forgiveness that you receive from your father will not be containable in your heart your heart is not big enough that is so radical if you and I could really appreciate the magnitude of our offenses against God and our sin and therefore the corresponding magnitude of our forgiveness that we've received from this high and exalted God and at the great cost of Jesus's life death and resurrection friends to the degree that we would get that and be gotten by it it would spill over because there is nothing that any human being has ever done or failed to do to you or me that even gets within the same galaxy, right? And Jesus is saying, if you know the Father and you know yourself, you'll know that there is no way that forgiveness received vertically won't transform you to be a forgiveness dispenser horizontally. Oh, it's so beautiful, and he wants us to experience it daily because he knows what sin does to our consciences. So his kindness, his forgiveness, right? Our relational needs, our, our, there's our physical needs, and we experience his kindness for those. Our relational needs, we experience his forgiveness. This is the vision of who our Father is. And then there's his holiness, our moral needs. And that's really verse 13. <clears throat> you see, Jesus is teaching us that our Father wants us as His children to be growing into His holiness daily also. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So I'm asking forgiveness for past sins in verse 12, and I'm thinking about the reality and danger of future sins and my vulnerability to them in verse 13. And I am being honest that when I look within my own heart, I realize that I do not possess the strength to stand against temptation, I need my father. How, and and friends, I, I think Jesus means for us to feel an urgency about this. How could the children of such a father feel unmoved by the pursuit of holiness? Right? Jesus is saying what it means to be 
to be my disciples and to be the sons of this father is that like father, like sons, you're going to be chips off the old block. I'm going to make you into sons who will be holy. And if we don't feel that urgency, I think Jesus would say, well, then why do you assume that you're his son? You know, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Fear and trembling. Urgency, importance, priority. Work it out. What it means to be saved by such a great father, among other things, is that there will be a growing passion and pursuit for holiness. And if we just try to write that out of our lives and we don't care about that dimension, Paul would say, then how do you know that God is at work in you? And I think Jesus would say the same thing. So that's father-filled prayer. So different from fatherless prayer. Now, what about the last point, father-provided prayer, why we can and ought to pray? And I just want to close with you thinking about how amazing the gospel is. Does prayer trouble you? You know, it ought to trouble us more than it does. It is a massive problem. And I'm not talking about the problem of unanswered prayer. And I'm not even talking about what Lewis talks about in the reflection quote, which is how in the world can we get our minds around the reality that God, who made everything and controls everything, uh, would respond to our prayers as if our prayers would make any significance to him? That's a really important question, but I don't think that's the biggest problem with prayer. The biggest problem with prayer is not the distance between God and us as beings, that he's creator and that we're creatures. The biggest problem with prayer is the moral distance between God the Holy One and us as sinful people. Why would would a holy God call us to pray, and why and how could we ever have any expectation that he's going to answer our prayers or give us any blessing? Friends, you need to feel that tension because that tension is resolved by the gospel. The prophet Isaiah says, you can look it up in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. He says, listen, God's hand or arm is not so short that it can't save Israel and his ear is not dull. He can hear you. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God so that he does not hear. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is, until the problem of our sin is answered, prayer will not make any sense and is not possible. God will not listen. That's a big problem. And so here comes Jesus. You see, it's only when you see that problem with prayer, that you can begin to appreciate what a privilege prayer is because of the price that was necessary to be paid in order to make it possible for you and me to pray, not just to God, but to God as a reconciled Father. You know, what Jesus says is so true in verse 8. I was reflecting on this this week, and it just, this was the, this was the point, this was the point that just, that just threw me to the ground. 
just thinking about the implications of what he says. For your father, in verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And thinking about that truth about the Father in a wider context than just the Lord's Prayer. Because, friends, that's true about the gospel, isn't it? And Jesus is speaking as, uh, to his disciples and to us as the one who is the greatest proof that that's true. That our Father knew what we needed before we asked him. Friends, God knew... The Father knew. I just want you to think about this. The Father knew that what we needed was to be reconciled to him as our Father before we ever asked him. The Father knew that what we needed was a perfect righteousness, a fulfillment of the law that we ourselves could never accomplish on our own. He knew that we were going to need that before we ever asked him. He knew that we were going to need an answer for our sin and the justice of his wrath against our sin before we ever asked him. And so what did he do? Without us asking him, He sent his son into the world. In fact, long before that, right, he promised that he would send this seed of the woman into the world and through that seed conquer sin and conquer the serpent, right? Before we ever asked him, Adam and Eve didn't say in the wake of their sin, hey, 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 since you're so gracious, can you? And neither did we. And Paul celebrates. I mean, the wonder of the gospel. We look at that cross and we say, we didn't ask for it, but God gave it. And he knew what we were going to need before we asked him. And so Paul in Romans 5 says, for at the right time, which is not defined by when we asked him, for at the right time, while we were still weak and not asking God, Christ died for the ungodly. And God knew, friends, the Father knew before we ever asked him, that we were going to need assurance and certainty that the sacrifice of Christ as our substitute on that cross had been accepted and was sufficient for any and all who would ever put their trust in him. And so what did the father do before we ever asked him? He raised his son from the dead. And he knew that we could not benefit from that offer, from that gift, from the power of Christ's work. He knew that we could not benefit from it unless someone told us about it. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so without our ever asking him, what did he do? He equipped and prepared and sent messengers into our lives to proclaim the good news of what God had done in Christ and to call for repentance and faith on this great Savior, Jesus Christ. And God knew, the Father knew before we ever asked Him that we would not be able even to respond to what we'd heard unless He first gave us new hearts and changed our wills and gave us the gifts of repentance and faith without our even asking Him. And He did this. Now, friends... What Jesus says is far truer than we realize. And so how can people who have received these gifts 
from such a great father without our even asking him, how could we not be completely revolutionized to ask him for other things, right? To make a life out of laying hold of his willingness because we have the ultimate precedent before us. He who did not spare, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The implication is that having done the greatest thing, we can trust him for the lesser things. Let me leave you with a definition of prayer. Christian prayer. And, and here's how I would define it. I would say that prayer is the Christian singing the gospel back to the God who saved him. Prayer is the Christian singing the gospel back to the God who saved him or her. The Father sent Jesus into the world to sing the gospel in the world. And then, he, then Jesus teaches us to sing the gospel, right? And then we sing the music of the gospel back to the Father through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is describing And so, friends, that means that we are to pray then in this way, not fatherlessly, but in a way that is father-filled, that looks looks to God, that sees ourselves through through, uh, the Father's eyes and and the Father through Jesus' eyes, so that we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, teach us to pray from the gospel. I ask in Jesus' name.